theology is and how God has dealt with humanity through a series of covenants. And covenant theology is the study of those covenants and how God has related to mankind. In the Reformed tradition, we use covenants as a structure to understand the Bible and the history of redemption. This is the plan for the class. Here we're on, we've covered the first two weeks. We did the introduction. We did the covenant of creation last week. And this week, we are studying the covenant of commencement as it relates to Adam and the covenant of preservation as it relates to Noah. As I had told you the prior weeks, my primary source for this class is Christ of the Covenants by teaching elder Palmer Robertson. I've also pulled in other sources as appropriate, plus my own material sort of worked in, and I'm responsible for all mistakes. I'm going to jump right in because, as I said, we have a lot of material. So for the first half, or maybe a little more than half of our class this morning, we're talking about the covenant of commencement. Now, this may be a slightly unfamiliar term. You don't hear this as much as you hear some of the other ones. But remember our basic structure. We have the covenant of works and the one covenant of grace. And the one covenant of grace spans both the Old and the New Testament. It starts in Genesis chapter 3, right after the fall, which is where we're going to be focused this morning, and then it proceeds all the way through the new covenant and ultimately will be realized in the last days there in Revelation 20. So we have not, not multiple covenants of grace, but one covenant of grace. And the first, the first part of the one covenant of grace, the first sub-covenant, if you will, is the, what we call the covenant of commencement that starts there in Genesis 3.15. And the covenant is first revealed when God is pronouncing his curses on the serpent, the woman, and the man. And if you have a Bible, you might want to open it to Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to put the text up here, but you might want to refer to it as well. And what you'll notice is that the curses are pronounced in the order that the creatures sinned. He speaks first to the serpent, then to the woman, then to the man, because that's the order that it happens, right? The serpent tempts the woman who then tempts the man. This is what Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 7. As I've told you, I always like to go to our standards as a point of reference. 7, chapter 3. Man, by his fall, having made himself incapable of life by that covenant, the Lord was pleased to make a second, commonly called the covenant of grace, wherein he freely offereth unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved and promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto eternal life his Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. So the covenant of works, Adam fails a probationary test, and that's where we are this morning with the second, commonly called the covenant of grace. Jumping to 7, chapter, paragraph 5, this covenant was differently administered in the time of the law and in the time of the gospel. Under the law, it was administered by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the paschal lamb, and other types and ordinances delivered to the people of the Jews, all for signifying Christ to come, which were for that time sufficient and efficacious through the operation of the Spirit to instruct and build up the elect in faith in the promised Messiah, by whom they had full remission of sins and eternal salvation, and is called the Old Testament. So this is a vital point that you see, and if, if you listen to the sermons that our pastor's been preaching through Hebrews 11, it's, it's all right there, that the, the saints in the Old Testament, Abraham, David, all those people listed in Hebrews 11, they are saved by faith in the coming Christ. They didn't know the name of Jesus. They didn't have the full revelation that we have, 
but Abraham had faith, and it was credited to him by righteousness. There is, no, there is nobody who's ever been saved by the covenant of works. 7-6, under the gospel, when Christ, the substance, was exhibited, when he was revealed, the ordinances in which this covenant is dispensed are the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, which, though fewer in number and administered with more simplicity and less outward glory, Yet in them it is held forth in more fullness, evidence, and spiritual efficacy to all nations, both Jews and Gentiles, and is called the New Testament. And in bold, my bold, there are not therefore two covenants of grace differing in substance, but one and the same under various dispensations. So I told you before, if there's one thing you get out of this class, I want you to remember that there's one covenant of grace, and it starts in Genesis 3.15. All right, talking about the covenant of commencement specifically. All the citations here where I write COTC, those are citations to Christ of the covenants. So this is what Dr. Robertson says. Genesis 3, 14 through 19 records the provisions of the Adamic administration of the covenant of redemption. Think what I just said, the Adamic administration of the covenant of redemption. I just told you there's, there's one covenant of grace and it's got these sort of sub-covenants within it that we're talking about, right? We've got Adam, we've got Noah, we've got Abraham, we've got Sinai, we've got David. And so this is one of those sort of sub-covenants, the Adamic administration of the one covenant of grace. God speaks to Satan, to the woman and to the man, following the order of their defection from loyalty to the Creator. Elements of curse and blessing are found in each address, thus serving structurally to bind inseparably the covenant of creation with the covenant of redemption. So the covenant of creation is, is still there, but the covenant of works isn't going to work because Adam failed the probationary test, and now we have seamlessly coming off of it, covenant of redemption. So let's look at the word to Satan. This is Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 through 15. The Lord God, Yahweh, said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel." Now, we're going to be looking at this in detail. You'll note here that I put on the slide in bold the word offspring. The ESV uses the word offspring. The word seed is more commonly used, which is how um, the King James and other translations do it. We're going to look at the, the underlying Hebrew word in a minute and talk about the semantic range of that. God's first words after the, after the fall, um, when he's pronouncing his curses, are to the serpent in 3.14. Now, there are people out there, and I don't tend to talk a lot in these classes about kind of historical critical stuff where people try to deny the truth of the Bible or come up with some alternative explanation for it because, frankly, they're just mistaken. And our basic premise is that the Bible is true and it is the Word of God, and we don't worry a lot about what other people say. But it, 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 it's important to remember this is not some kind of, you know, just-so fable about why snakes crawl or why people don't like snakes. Um, those things are both true. Snakes do, in fact, crawl, and no, people generally don't like snakes, including me. When I see snakes, I generally kill them. But <laughs> this, is, this is about a lot more than that, right? The, the serpent himself is rightfully being cursed. 
Cursed are you above all livestock and above the beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. But the nature of fall and redemption affects the whole, it affects the whole natural world. It's not just about snakes, but it's also bigger than that, right? This is a cosmic problem. This, the creation has rebelled against the creator. God's glory as creator has been assaulted. Creation has been ruptured. And it is a mistake for us to think about the plan of redemption in entirely anthrocentric, man-centered terms. It's about God. It's not about man. It's about God's glory. His glory as creator has been damaged, and it's going to be restored. It's about him. It's not about us. I mean, it's partially about us, but it's really, uh, think about it in a God-centered way. And so the struggle really goes beyond the material level. Um, Dr. Robertson, I think, rightly points to Ephesians 6.12 here, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So the curse clearly goes beyond just the serpent to Satan himself, right? The serpent represents Satan. He's Satan's agent in tempting Eve. And so, yes, the snake is cursed, but the curse goes beyond that. Satan is also being cursed, right? And here's what Dr. Robertson says. Yet the curse certainly goes beyond the serpent to Satan himself. Only as the serpent represents Satan does its humiliation posture possess real significance. The Satan-directed character of the curse appears more explicitly in verse 15. So bringing us to verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now that's the ESV version with the word offspring. This is the King James. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now, one thing, I didn't put this in the slides, but I, I, I want to I say it now. I'll probably say it again later. Consider here also the nature of the injuries. We have bruise the head and bruise the heel. So the seed of the woman is going to have his heel bruised. The seed of the serpent is going to have his head bruised. One of those is a fatal injury, and the other is not. So when we look at the ultimate fulfillment of this in the cosmic battle represented by Satan and Christ, Christ is injured, right, on the cross, but not fatally. But, but, the, but, but, in, but at the end, in the eschaton, you can read all about it in Revelation, Satan is going to suffer the fatal injury. And so the heel and the head are showing us that here in Genesis 3. So here in, here in the King James, we have seed as opposed to offspring, Let's look at that. The Hebrew word here is zirah, and it, I, I looked it up, and apparently it has a very similar semantic range to the word seed in English, in that it can mean a physical seed like you plant in the ground, and there's examples of that in Genesis 129 when it's talking about the plants and the seed after their kind. Um, but it can also, it's also commonly used in the Bible to mean offspring or descendants. And so it's contextually not wrong to say offspring, because that's certainly what it means. But it's also a quite good literal translation to say seed, as long as we in English remember that what's meant by that is descendants. I'm going to use seed for the rest of this morning, because that's what Robertson uses, and that's what theologians usually do. It sounds sort of poetic to talk about the seed of the woman, right, as opposed to the offspring of the woman. But that's what we are talking about.
So Satan and mankind have, up to this point, sided together against God. So, you know, Satan goes and whispers in the woman's ear, and she eats the fruit, she gives it to her husband and eats, and now we've got this sort of alignment. And you might have thought that would continue, but God doesn't let that happen. He sovereignly intervenes. He puts enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. He actively does that. He breaks up the alliance and makes sure that there's now going to be this warfare going on in the future. And that's going to happen on more than one level. So the three of those, and let's look at them. First, enmity between Satan and the woman. Why the woman specifically? Well, there's a few things we can consider. Um, she, of course, is the first to be seduced. And let me take an aside here, something else that I didn't put on the slides that I want to say. There's a sense in which the fall is an inversion of the created order. God is supposed to be ruling over creation. The man is ruling over his husband. The man and woman together are ruling over the creatures. And what do we see in the fall? We see Adam taking instructions from the creature, and then Eve taking instruction from Adam, and then Adam rebelling against God. So instead, instead of it flowing this way, they're pushing up, right? The whole creation is turned on its head in this disruption. And so just sort of keep that in mind. But here, the woman is the first to be seduced, and you might say that he would otherwise disparage his wife. Oh, you know, you were the one who listened to the snake. You, you were the one that messed everything up. But remember, the woman is ultimately going to be the one who's the bearer of the child, who will be the, the representative who will deliver man from Satan. Womankind has this vital role to play in the redemption of the world. So who do we mean by the woman? Well, it could just mean Eve herself, but probably more likely it means all of womankind. Here's what Robertson says. He says, without implying necessarily that all women universally shall participate in the enmity against Satan, the text affirms the basic principle that womankind shall have a most significant role to play in the cosmic struggle. So that's sort of one level between the woman and Satan. Now, the second one is, might be the one that is sort of the most talked about theologically, enmity between the seeds. So what do we mean by that? Well, we've got the seed of the woman, seed of Satan. So who is that? First, who's the seed of the woman? Or the offspring of the woman. Robertson says, the woman's seed could be identified with the totality of humanity. However, the immediately succeeding section in Genesis narrates Cain's murder of his brother Abel. The New Testament explicitly determines the significance of these two persons in cosmic struggle between God and Satan. Cain originates from the evil one. We'll look at that in a second. In 1 John 3.12, we're told that. Though descended from Eve, just as his brother, he cannot be regarded as belonging to the seed of the woman, as described in Genesis 3.15. Instead of being opposed to Satan, he is the seed of Satan. The seed of the woman cannot be identified simply with all physical descendants of womankind. Okay, so I, I thought that was extremely compelling. So it, it can't be true. When we talk about who are the offspring of the woman, who are the, who are the offspring of Eve, Theologically, that can't mean all of her biological descendants. How do we know? Because you turn the page over to Genesis chapter 4, and we have Cain killing Abel, and then we know from 1 John that Cain is the seed of Satan. Okay, can't mean that. So it's got to mean something else. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered by his brother. 
And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. So this, that's, that's what it says there in 1 John 3. So, we have, so putting that scripture together, we know that's got to be the case. Consider, by the process of natural birth, the fallen woman brings forth a depraved seed. But by grace, God establishes enmity within the heart of particular descendants of the woman. These individuals may be designated as the woman's seed. So this is the key. What we have here is the gospel. So every single human being who is descended from Eve, with the exception of Jesus, who, had a, who did not have a sin nature, but with every other human being, has inherited a corrupt sin nature from his parents. And sin did my mother conceive me. That ultimately, due to the fall, everybody is born sinful. However, we know from the scriptures that God has chosen for himself a people. And he, he elects us, he changes our heart, he takes away our heart of stone, he gives us a heart of flesh. We hear the gospel, we respond, and we turn to him in faith. And it is those who have that faith who are the true seed of the woman. Everybody else, not so much. So the seed of the woman in this sense means God's elect, those whose hearts have been changed by God. In other words, Christians. But who do we mean by the seed of the serpent? Well, obviously we don't, not, we don't trivially mean just snakes, right? That would be convenient, but that's not it. Well, first, we know that Satan, Satan has his associated fallen angels. We know this because it's, it's in the Bible. It wasn't, he's not the only one who fell. There's, there are these demons, these evil angels that are associated with him. I got a couple of proof texts for that. Matthew 25, 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Revelation 12, 9. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So we know, we know that there's this sort of coterie of evil angels that go along with Satan. We don't know how many there are. We don't know a whole lot about them. You've heard me say before that I'm of the view we should not speculate excessively into these things beyond what's revealed in the, in the scriptures, but we know at least that much. So I think we can fairly say that all those creatures, and they are creatures, are, they're part of the seed of Satan, but it, but it goes beyond that. Scripture also tells us that humanity itself is the seed of Satan. All, in fact, all humanity who's not in Christ. This is from Robertson. At the same time, Scripture indicates that within humanity itself is a seed of Satan set against God and his purposes. Cain was of the evil one, 1 John 3, 12. John the Baptist describes his hypocritical contemporaries as a generation of vipers, Luke 3, 7. The Lord himself explicitly indicated that his opponents were of their father the devil and would join him in his murderous works, John 8, 44. Among humanity... The physical descendants of the woman exist a seed of Satan. The seed stands in opposition to God and his purposes. So this tension then that we see, this enmity between the seeds, between the seed of the woman, the true seed of the woman, and the seed of Satan, in some ways explains all of history. All throughout the scriptures, from that very moment, from the time you turn the page to Genesis 4-1, all the way through the New Testament, you always see two groups. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. It's, it's David and it's Saul. It's, it's the, when, when you hear 
Peter preaching in Acts chapter 2. There are those who hear and believe, and there are those who scoff and walk away. It's, it's the whole history of humanity. And if you, if, you have, if you got a newspaper this morning and it opened up, it was right there on the front page too. This, this, this tension between those, those who are in Christ and those who are not is going to be with us until the last day. And in, in a very real sense, I think, it's the, it's the paradigm for understanding all of Scripture and God's redemptive plan. He has chosen his elect for his glory to choose for himself a people, and he's designated the reprobate for destruction also for his glory to show his justice. All right, next, the word to Satan. We are still on the word to Satan. We're on the third type of enmity, enmity between he and Satan. So in Genesis 3.15, it says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, this pronoun is in Hebrew is third person masculine singular. He is the correct translation. It doesn't say they, it doesn't say she. Although apparently in the Latin Vulgate, they converted it to feminine. That's inexplicable. But the, in the Septuagint, interestingly, they translated it correctly. So if you were to look at that early sort of Greek version of the Old Testament, they got this as well. So the he, the seed, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So who are we talking about? Well, of course, we're talking about Christ. To correspond to the narrowing from seed to Satan on one side of the enmity, it would appear quite appropriate to expect a similar narrowing from a multiple seed of the woman to a singular he who would champion the cause of God's enmity against Satan. A single representative hero who shall descend from the woman to join the conflict, the pronoun he may involve the whole of the woman's seed, but involvement shall be by representative principle. And as you have heard our pastor say many times, there's only one hero in the Bible, right? So that hero who shall arise is none other than Christ himself. And so this is uh, from Colossians chapter 2. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So if you want to think about that battle, what really, what really happened on the cross, the Roman soldiers have nailed Jesus up there, and he's dying. He says it is finished. Paul's interpreting for it for us here in Colossians chapter 2. What really happened is, yes, his heel was bruised, but he has won the battle. He has triumphed over Satan. Satan is defeated. He is humiliated. And it's only a matter of time before he's cast into the lake of fire forever. The battle between the true seeds, between Christ and Satan, is already won. So we see this conflict between the seeds then at three levels, between the serpent and the woman, between the seed of the woman and the seed of Satan, and then between Christ and Satan. And significantly, I said earlier that all three of these of the words contain blessings and curses. But you'll note that this one, there's no blessing for Satan. Satan just gets accursed. He's, he's going to eat dust, he's going to crawl on his belly, and he's going to get his head crushed. But there's no, there's no upside for, for Satan. But there is, of course, a blessing on the seed of the woman. All right, next, the word to the woman in 3.16. To the woman he said, 
I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. All right, so first we see that the woman is going to bear children, which itself is clearly a blessing. And notably, prior to the fall, nobody is born. It's after this is pronounced that it says Adam knew, knew his wife and she conceived. So the bearing of children is also, of course, how the woman is participating in the cosmic conflict, as we talked earlier. It's a woman who's going to give birth to Christ. But there's also a curse associated with it. I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, in pain you shall bring forth children. Now, Dr. Robertson made the point, and I think I agree with him, that this doesn't just include the physical pain involved in the birthing process, although that's certainly very real, but it also includes the other sort of associated pain associated with you know, the having of children to include things like infertility, miscarriage, the death of children, unbelieving children, all the, all the sort of woes associated with, with the nature of, of children. And I think that's probably right. Then the addition, the other part of the curse, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Um, this is often interpreted, I think, to mean that the woman will have an excessive desire or dependence for her husband, and that may well be true, but I think I agree with what Dr. Robertson says, that there's another sense to the curse. I think we, we all recognize this. Here's what he writes. However, an extensive parallelism of the phraseology in the very next chapter of Genesis warrants the serious consideration of another possible interpretation. In this related passage, God warns Cain that the desire of sin shall be to dominate him. But Cain must rule over sin instead. Sin crouches at the door, and unto you shall be his desire, but you shall rule over it. So this is, again, this is the very next chapter, and we have personified sin who's desiring Cain, who wants to dominate Cain, but Cain has to rule over it. So think about the use there of desire and what it means to desire something. And then we're told that the, he says, the desire of the woman shall be the husband, but he shall rule over her. Not in the sense of excessive dependence, but in the sense of excessive determination to dominate. The woman shall desire her husband. Her longing shall be to possess him, to control him, to dominate him. Just as personified, sin's desire was directed towards the possession of Cain, so the woman's desire shall be directed toward the possession of her husband. So I think this is right, and I think it's part of the curse because it's part of the way the fall involved this creation of the inverted order where the, the woman is telling her husband what to do and he's doing it. This is part of her curse. This is desire to, to be in charge, desire to dominate her husband, and that creates this futility which is sometimes, and even, even the best husband is still going to be ruling over his wife, and in some cases you're going to see him sinning back by excessively dominating her and controlling her in an inappropriate way. And it's going to create this tension and strife within the marriage relationship that wasn't what God intended. So you can take that or leave it just as you like, but I thought it was a, a good point that I wanted to share with you. All right, that brings us to the word to the man in Genesis chapter 3, verse 17. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. 
thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you were dust, and to dust you shall return. So, I said earlier, God curses the serpent, the woman, and the man, in the order in which they transgressed. So the man comes last. And like the word to the woman, the word to the man involves a blessing as well as a curse. And the blessing here is very simply that he'll eat bread, that the sustenance necessary for life is going to be provided. Right? It doesn't say you'll starve to death. It says you're, you're going to eat the bread. But the curse that goes with it is that that provision of food is going to require an excessive amount of frustrating labor. The labor itself is not the curse, because, of course, we see that in the original covenant of creation. Labor, as we talked last week, is a creation ordinance. It is good, but now we have futile, frustrating, excessive labor in order to make a living and get food to eat. Man's ultimate curse consigns him to the grave, for dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. Genesis 3.19. The threat of the creation covenant finds an awesome fulfillment in the dissolution of man's person. Adam had been created to rule the earth. Now the earth's dust shall rule him. I thought it was very well put by Dr. Robertson. All right, so I've got a couple of other excerpts from him to summarize the covenant of commencement. God's words to Adam foreshadow the subsequent history of redemption. In organic relation with all subsequent administrations of the covenant of redemption, these verses anticipate both the method by which redemption is to be accomplished and the mystery of redemption's application. Let's take that apart real quick. We talked, remember, big picture, one covenant of grace with multiple sub-covenants, with multiple administrations. So in organic relation with all subsequent administrations of the covenant of redemption. So every, all, all the pieces are here in this initial covenant. They just get amplified and explained and flushed out in the subsequent covenants, right? We've got blessings and we've got curses. We've got pointing to Jesus as the ultimate redeemer and atonement for sins. And there is also this mysterious element of how redemption will be applied. We know how it's going to be accomplished, but there is a mystery to how it will be applied. In due time, one representative man was born of a woman, that being, of course, Christ. The single man entered into mortal conflict with Satan. Though bruised himself, he nonetheless destroyed Satan's power. By this struggle, he accomplished redemption. So that's the material on the covenant of commencement. Um, we did better than I thought. It's just a few minutes after the hour. If anybody has a question, I'd be happy to take it now before I jump into Noah. Can you use the seed in proving that Jesus Christ was foretold in Genesis? Yes. He is the seed of the woman. But the thing to remember is we have this continuing revelation. You know, like I said at the beginning, we are richly blessed today compared to these Old Testament believers because we have what they didn't have. We have a whole Bible. We have the complete revelation. It's right there. You can read all about it, right? We've all got copies at home. Think about what did Adam have? Now, granted, Adam had the advantage of having seen God, you know, interacted with God you know, in the garden pre-fall. But even think about the next generation. Think about all those people who are listed in the genealogies. They only had the slimmest bit of prophecy, the slimmest bit of revelation, right? And then it gets greater and greater, right? We move on, and then we're going to get to Noah, and God reveals more to Noah. And then he reveals even more to Abraham. 
And then we get to Moses on Mount Sinai, and we got this whole giving of the law. And now we've got a great amount of prophecy, a great amount of revelation. And then the prophets start to come. And you've got Isaiah, and you've got Ezekiel, and you've got all the minor prophets, and, and it builds. And then we get Christ, and we get the apostles. And so you get much greater revelation. So he's there. He's absolutely foretold, but it's small. Anyone else? All right, let's jump into Noah. This is often called the covenant of preservation because of God's promise to not destroy the world again, at least not until the eschaton. In God's covenant, this is Robertson, in God's covenant with Adam, the first reference to the two lines of development among humanity appears. One line belongs to the seed of Satan. One line belongs to the seed of the woman. Genesis 4 through 11 sketches the early development of these two divergent lines. The covenant with Noah appears in the context of the unfolding of these two lines and manifests God's attitude toward both. Total and absolute destruction shall be heaped on the seed of Satan, while free and unmerited grace shall be lavished on the seed of the woman. So, we, th- I thought this was an amazing way to start this, because we just, we just talked about how humanity is divided into these two lines. There's the seed of the woman, and there's the seed of Satan. And then as we, in the, the very next chapter, we have Cain killing Abel, Cain being cursed, and then we have Seth being born to the line of promise. And now here, here we are at Noah, the world has continued to sin, and we're going to have God, you know, pronouncing a judgment where we see what happens to the seed of Satan. Now, it's not the final judgment, but it's a real judgment in history that God was entitled to bring that shows us very clearly what's going to happen to those who are not in Christ. All right, there's four passages of Scripture, and if you have your Bible, you can turn to them with with, with us, that primarily set out the covenant with Noah. That's Genesis 6, 17 through 22, Genesis 8, 20 through 22, Genesis 9, 1 through 7, and then Genesis 9, 8 through 17. Now, significantly, there's both pre- and post-flood, both anti- and post-diluvian, I'm saying that, passages, but that doesn't mean that there's two covenants. Because we talked in the introductory week about how frequently with the covenant that God makes with his people, you have sort of an introductory part, and then you have the covenant being formalized. We see that with Abraham in Genesis 12, where it's announced, and Genesis 15, where there's the formal covenant being made. We see the same thing with David, right? We have David being anointed as a boy when he's a shepherd, and then later we have him finally becoming king and entering into formal covenant. So we see the same thing here with Noah, right? Before the flood... God talks to Noah, he warns him, he tells him to build the ark, and how does Noah respond? What did Noah have to have in order to go build the ark? Faith, right? If he he didn't believe God, he'd say, oh, phooey, I'm not building an ark. (laughs) I I got crops to tend over here, I got herds. Then he clearly could have done that, right? So it was only in faith that Noah built this boat in the middle of nowhere and pulled all these animals and did all this stuff because he believed God. But then after the deliverance, after the flood has receded, then we see a formal institution of the covenant. So let's look at these four passages now, and we're going to see the, how the Noahic covenant shakes out. Genesis six seventeen through 22. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you. And this is the first use of this word, this Hebrew word, bereath, which is the, the, the word that is used in the Old Testament for covenant. I will establish my covenant with you 
and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and stored up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. So that's before the flood. After the flood, the waters have receded. The ark has come to rest. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, to Yahweh, and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when Yahweh smelled the pleasing aroma, Yahweh said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. Now, if you haven't looked at this in a while, you might be sort of wondering, what in the world is this about? I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. We're going to talk about it. All right. Genesis chapter 9, 1 through 7. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. In your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man his blood shall be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth, and multiply in it. And then continuing, Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. So if anybody had any doubt that there's a covenant with Noah, uh, I don't know how more clear we could be. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh 
that is on the earth. All right, so in his book, Dr. Robertson analyzes the covenant. He has sort of six major points. So I'm just going to follow his outline and address those six points in order. Um, first, the covenant with Noah emphasizes the interrelation of the creative and redemptive covenants. So the covenant of creation, one covenant of grace, there are some parallels, and there's a sense in which the covenant with Noah almost looks like a recreation, the way God gives the mandates and describes what Noah is to do. So take a look at this. On this slide, I have a comparison between Genesis 1.24 and Genesis 6.20. And Genesis 1.24, And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And then in Genesis 6.20, Of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing on the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come to you and keep them alive, right? So we have this recitation of all the living things using very similar language. First, God has created them, and now he's commanding Noah to be his agent by which they are preserved by taking them into the ark, and he gives this very similar list. So just, just kind of listen to the language and how it sounds the same. Um, here I'm comparing Genesis 1.30 with Genesis which is 8.17. In 1.30, he says, To every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And Genesis 8.17, Bring out with you every living thing that is with you, of all flesh, the birds and the animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth, and be fruitful, and multiply on the earth. So, I think it's sort of fair to say, and I've got one more comparison here, that there's a that you, you almost see this recreation. The animals are being released onto the earth, right? It's almost like when God created them the first time they filled the earth, now they're filling the earth again as they're coming out of the ark, right? The earth has been destroyed, now it's going to flourish again. On this slide, I've got Genesis 1.28 at the top and Genesis 9, 1 through 2 at the bottom. Genesis 1.28, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So there we have the dominion mandate, sometimes it's called the cultural mandate to subdue the earth. In Genesis 9, and God blessed Noah and his sons, and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth, and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground, and all the fish of the sea, into your hand they are delivered. So the first part of this, what do we see? We see God blessed them, meaning the, the man. God blessed Noah and his sons, and very parallel. And then what are they told to do? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And what's Noah told to do? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So that part is the same. And then in the original dominion mandate, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over everything that lives and moves on the earth. So you're in charge, you've got dominion. What looks a little different here with Noah is the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens and upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. So he's going to have dominion over them, but the different element, there's this sort of unnatural dread that's now present. It seems to be a consequence of the fall, because earlier that was before the fall. Now, after the fall, after the flood, 
there's going to be this, this dread, this fear of man upon the creation. So that's sort of an element of discontinuity. But I think the continuity is remarkable, isn't it? When you, when you line that up, how the Noahic covenant looks like a new creation. It's not an actual new creation, of course, but it's a, it's a renewal um, of the, the mandate. Man continues to maintain his position as the subduer of creation, and that dominion mandate continues. You occasionally will run into somebody theologically who thinks that the dominion mandate doesn't apply after the fall, um, and I think the, the language here to Noah makes it very clear that's not the case. We could have a whole class about the ethical responsibilities that we have as Christians with respect to how we treat creation. There's a, there's a lot to be said for caring for the earth and God's creation without worshiping it. There's perhaps a middle ground there we need to occupy. So this is a quote from Dr. Robertson on page 110. He says, Redeemed man must now internalize his salvation so that he thinks narrowly in terms of a soul-saving deliverance. To the contrary, redemption involves his total lifestyle as social, cultural creature. Rather than withdrawing narrowly into a restricted form of spiritual existence, redeemed man must move out with a total world and life perspective. So um, I heartily agree with that, that we need to have a Christian worldview and live fully. All right, second point. Uh, the covenant with Noah demonstrates the particularity of God's grace. So God has mercy on whom he has mercy. Noah and his family are chosen by God. It's not an accident that they survived the flood. Nobody else survives the flood by accident. God is very deliberate in whom he chooses. And those he chooses are saved. Those he does not choose are destroyed. The rest of humanity experienced God's righteous judgment. Um, this is Genesis 6, 5 through 8. Um, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was ev only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Man is evil, God's going to destroy him, but he's chosen. All right, third, the covenant of, with Noah demonstrates his intention to deal with families in his covenant relationship. This is very clear here with respect to Noah. We also see it, of course, with respect to Abraham, the promise to his descendants. We see it with respect to David and David's line. He's going to set David's descendant upon the throne, of course, being Christ. In 6.18, he says, But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, and your wife, and your sons' wives with you, 6.18, and then in 7.1, then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you were righteous before me in this generation. 7.1, and of course, we're, because we're told that everybody's thoughts are evil, when he says he's righteous, we don't mean that he's sinless. We mean that he is in faith looking to the Lord. He's obedient, right? Because we know that Abraham had faith and it was credited in his righteousness. And I think we can say the same thing of Noah, who demonstrated his faith by his work in building the ark and believing God. This feature of God's covenants I mentioned earlier, you see it expressly with respect to Abraham and David, and it's clear that there's a sense in which God works through families. Fourth, the covenant with Noah may be characterized primarily as one of preservation. 
God promises to preserve his creation despite man's continuing sin. I had a double slide there. Let's look at Genesis 8, 20 through 22. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of it, some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. So I previewed this a few minutes ago, and it seems a little bit incongruous. So God knows that man is sinful, and so as a result, he's going to promise not to destroy him? You know, that doesn't, that's not what you would expect, right? You would expect him to say, oh, man is sinful, going to destroy him. But that's not the case. Promise of preservation while it may seem like a non sequitur following the statement about the evil intention of man's heart, that is not the case. This is what Dr. Robertson says. However, God understands that the sin problem never will be cured by judgment and curse. If appropriate relief from sin's corruption is to appear, the earth must be preserved free of devastating judgments, such as the flood, for a time. God exercised his prerogative of just judgment in the days of Noah, not because he was ignorant of the inability of judgment to cure sin. The Lord knew precisely the state of man's heart before the flood and certainly understood the limitations of judgment's power to change the heart of man. Okay, so it's not like God didn't know that people weren't going to repent in the face of judgment, but he exercised his prerogative to bring judgment anyway. Here's the answer. However, to provide an appropriate historical demonstration of the ultimate destiny of a world under sin, God consumed the earth with the flood. This cataclysmic event later became the model of God's final judgment of the earth and the basis for refuting the argument of scoffers who would mock the certainty of an ultimate day, an ultimate accounting day. Let's just compare 2 Peter 3, 4 through 6. The divine dealing with man after the flood must be viewed with this overall perspective in mind. Man is totally depraved, inclined toward self-destruction, and worthy of judgment. But God, in grace and mercy, determines to preserve the life of man and promotes the multiplication of his descendants. So what's the covenant of preservation all about? God would be justified in having destroyed the world forever right then and at any time since, other than the fact that he promised he wouldn't. In his covenant with Noah, he promised to preserve the world so that there would be time for him to save for himself a people. And that's what the covenant of preservation is about, because he knew that the fear of judgment wasn't enough. Our hearts were simply too wicked. And that's why you see, you see this picture. Think about the New Testament. Think about Jesus interacting with the Pharisees. He's right there in front of them doing these miracles, proclaiming salvation, and yet he is rejected. The threat of judgment is not enough. Only with a new heart, only, only with faith given to you by God can you turn to Christ. And so God, in his plan of salvation, he is forbearing his judgment. He has promised that he will wait until the last day. And we also see in the covenant with Noah here, in the same section, the prohibition on murder and a mandate of capital punishment for it. Um, I'm not going to go into that just for lack of time. 
But I'll point out to you, this demonstrates for us the universal nature of God's moral law. And I'm going to go into that in some detail in two weeks when we deal with the synactic covenant. But suffice it to say for today that God's moral law did not begin at Mount Sinai. There is nothing new in Exodus chapter 20. And this is fairly good evidence of that, right? The commandment against murder is a recapitulation of the command already given to Noah. When Cain killed Abel, it wasn't okay because the law hadn't already been given. The law was written on the face of creation. It is written on our hearts, and it binds all people at all times. The nature of the death penalty here and the ramifications of that, I will have to say for another day um, for lack of time. Fifth point, the covenant with Noah is universal in character. It doesn't just bind Christians. It doesn't just bind humanity. Here's what Robertson says. He says, the whole created universe, including the totality of humanity, benefits from this covenant. Not only Noah and his seed, but every living creature lives under the sign of the rainbow. Isn't that beautiful? And here in Romans 8, Paul says this, Romans 8, 22 to 23. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Because all creation has suffered as a result of man's fall. And we see the corruption all around us. And so it is all creation that waits, preserved by the covenant with Noah, for the consummation of all things. This is from Robertson again. This universal character of the covenant with Noah provides the foundation for the worldwide proclamation of the gospel in the present age. God's commitment to maintain faithfully the orderings of creation displays his long-suffering toward the whole of humanity. He desires to make known the testimony of his goodness throughout the universe. All right, and lastly, sixth point. The seal of the covenant with Noah, the rainbow, emphasizes the gracious character of this covenant. After having destroyed the world via rain clouds, God has now set his battle bow, his instrument of war, in the clouds as a sign of promise and preservation. So when we look to those clouds that were once the implement of destruction, we now see the sign of God's covenant promise that he will not destroy the world that way again. Last slide. This is from Robertson. To summarize, the covenant with Noah provides the historical framework in which the Emmanuel principle may receive its full realization. God has come in judgment, but he has also provided a context of preservation in which the grace of redemption may operate. From the covenant with Noah, it becomes quite obvious that God's being with us, thus the Emmanuel principle, involves not only an outpouring of his grace on his people, it involves also an outpouring of his wrath on the seed of Satan. So I thought that was a nice way to wrap that up. It actually went pretty well. We have one minute left if anyone has a question. All right, seeing none, we'll wrap it up. I'll see you next week.